Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. I'm Andy Schmidt, here with Carrie Schmidt, my mom. Um, we are doing another testimony podcast, and today my mom is going to be sharing her testimony on how she became a Christian. Um, so thanks for coming on. I, I don't know how this is going to go because she, I, well, my mom is, uh, has similar personality to me and this could be crazy. So I, I don't know if, yeah, I mean, if you want to give people an introduction, tell them who you are and where you're from, and then just get into your testimony. I'm, I'm going to interrupt sometimes and I have questions, but other than that, you can just go and just tell them what, whatever. Okay. Well, as Andy said, I'm his mom. Um, I'm originally from Omaha, Nebraska, moved around a lot as a child and eventually ended up in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, which is how I ended up in Madison. So that's kind of the gist of how I ended up here and who I am. Um, Andy asked me if I prepared a little before coming on here and I'll be totally honest, I didn't. I usually prepare for, um, or I used to prepare for talks when I would get up and speak. However, I would get up and then I would not follow anything I wrote down. So I've learned to kind of go with the flow and let the Holy Spirit work as it, as he decides to through me. And so I will say if something doesn't make sense or I've missed gaps, Andy just asked questions because I definitely like to just go and whatever happens, happens. So that's where we're at. So well, a little bit about my, you want to say something? <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Okay. I'm, so, I'm ready. Okay. Well, I grew up in a home. I have a mom, a dad, and I have a sister that's six years younger than me. Um, we, I grew up in a very Catholic home. And when I say very Catholic, meaning um, a very liberal Catholic home, um, our idea of church was going to church every Sunday. And as long as you went to church on Sunday, you were good. Um, if you missed church, a lot of guilt came with that. Um, and so Sundays mornings were dedicated an hour to church. So you knew that you were good for the rest of your week. Um, growing up, I as I said before, I originally am from Omaha, Nebraska. I lived there till I was about four. And then my dad, who worked for American Family Insurance, got transferred to River Falls, Wisconsin. Uh, we lived in River Falls for about three years. During that three-year time span, um, my sister was born when I was six. Uh, from that, I started kindergarten in River Falls. However, I started at one kindergarten and then halfway through my year, I got transferred to a different school. And I kind of share this background a little because my parents moved every three years as I was growing up until I hit middle school. And so in River Falls, I attended two elementary schools. Three years later, after moving to River Falls, we moved to Burnsville, Minnesota. Um, I started out there at one elementary school and then about a year after we moved, my parents decided to build a home on the other side of town in Burnsville. So then I transferred again to a different elementary school. We lived there 
for a couple years. And then my dad got transferred again with American family and we ended up in Sun Prairie. So I think all when all said and done in my six or including kindergarten, it was seven years of elementary school. I went to five different elementary schools. And I really think that a lot of that shaped kind of who I am today in the essence of I don't mind moving around. I don't feel attached to a lot of things um, when it comes to like my house or where we live, I'm just not attached to it. And I think my childhood definitely um, formed that for me from a young age. I, I guess once we moved to Sun Prairie, I was in sixth grade. And at that point in my life, uh, things seemed to go relatively smooth. My mom stayed home. My dad worked a lot. He traveled a lot for his job. Um, but I think life seemed relatively good. We, we got situated in Sun Prairie and I remember my dad getting another job offer. Um, this time it was to Colorado and my mom at that point refused to move because I was entering middle school. And she said that at this point in time that we kind of needed to settle. So that's how we finally um, stayed in the Madison area. From a young age, I mean, I like I said, I went to church Catholic every Sunday. I remember visiting my grandparents and kind of one of my favorite things to do with my grandparents growing up was going to church with them. They would get up and go to the 6 a.m. mass and then we'd go, to, we'd go to big boys and they lived in Omaha. So we only did this a couple times a year, but it was, we'd get up for, Sunday mass and then we go out to breakfast and for me that was a huge highlight because on the way to, to mass they would play polka music and they would pick up my grandma's friends and it was just kind of this big get together and so that um that was a big part of my life and so I think church really stuck with me however one thing I do remember during those time frames when I would go with my grandparents was walking into the old Catholic church and everybody had a rosary. And a lot of the times they were going through the rosary and they were, it sounded like mumbling to me. So there was this mixture between the rosary and then people would go to the, kind of like the altar and they would light candles for people they were praying for. What is a rosary? I don't know what that is. I'll be completely honest, I don't fully know either. I mean, I went to catechism growing up. I went, I went through everything growing up, but I'll be honest, I never really learned anything. Um, so all I know is that the rosary has something to do with you pray through the rosary and somehow it makes you good. And I wish I knew more about it, but never got into it as an adult. And I'll get into that a little later, but I never prayed the rosary, never did anything with that. So I'll be honest. I have no idea what it is. Sounds like mumbling to me. Okay. <laughs> so that was kind of my early childhood. I didn't have anything drastic. That went on. I was a little bit of a handful as a child. Um, I always had a mind of my own. Um, you know, my parents would tell me one thing and I would do the other thing. So I kind of felt like I was on the verge of like rebellion most of my There's life. There's a story when you were a kid with the chocolate bar that might be helpful to tell at the grocery store. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of childhood stories I could give you, um, but this was one. This was one that really stuck with me. Uh, my mom, I went grocery shopping with her one time, and so my parents definitely they had morals. They they um, taught my sister and I to definitely 
kind of toe the line and make sure we did what was right. And so I went grocery shopping with my mom one time and I remember asking her to get me some Brock's candy, that candy that you put in a bag and you have to weigh it. And she, she told me no. And I thought, okay, don't even dare trying to tell me no, because I'm going to do what I want to do anyways. And I remember going back and sneaking candy and putting it in my coat pocket. Um, and so we got home after I put the candy in my coat pocket and I thought I, I beat my mom. I got what I wanted and I got home and I showed her and I said, mom, look what I got. And my mom looked at me. She said, get back in the car. And I just about died because I was like, what do you mean? She goes, you are taking that back to the store manager and you're going to explain to them that you stole from them. And I was petrified. I was probably, we were still living in Omaha. So I was only about four at the time. But I remember that to this day being absolutely petrified. She got me in the car, walked me back in the store. I had to pull the candy out of my pocket. I had to tell the manager that I stole it from them. But to this day, that stuck with me. I never stole anything again that deliberately from a store or anything. If I, if I've stole anything, it was on, I just didn't know, but I, I, I never stole anything again. So I, we were raised in a household, my sister and I, that you tried to do the right thing to people as best as you could. Um, that kind of takes me then to when we moved to Sun Prairie in sixth grade. I remember that being kind of the pivoting point in my life. I was going through puberty. I was bigger than most of the kids, chubby and bigger, and kids would make fun of me. And I was- and hairier. And hairier. Yeah, I had hairy legs, the whole thing. I was just kind of this gross, like tomboy girl that just, I don't want to say gross. I was clean. I was just not, I was not the girly girl. I didn't play with Barbies. I liked sports. Um, but we moved to some prairie and I remember being made fun of a lot. I remember taking the bus um, to and from school. And I, to this day, I remember this one kid would make fun of me about how fat I was and, and, you know, just always made fun of me. And that I think also definitely took me down a path later in life that I really struggled with because being made fun of during those years when you're going through puberty was really difficult, especially for a girl when you want to feel like you fit in. I'm at a new school. And I remember going to this new school and it was the last day of fifth grade because we had just moved there two weeks before. And I got connected with a group of kids at this new school. And it was the last day of school. And we all decided to bring shaving cream to school and kind of, kind of wipe it everywhere, have shaving cream fights and do all the stuff. I thought it would be fun. So here I am, new kid. I'm already being made fun of. I bring shaving cream with a few other kids and I end up in the principal's office and my mom has to come get me. And I feel like that kind of set the tone for how my life went once we moved to Sun Prairie. Um, <clears throat> I became kind of rebellious. And I remember that being fun and I fit in when I was kind of wild and did what I wanted to do. And anyways, from there, I would just say that's how sixth grade went was I got into a school, uh, classroom with a teacher that didn't like me from the beginning. He, him and I just did not mesh. I was very vocal. I said what I wanted to say. Um, there was no holding me back. 
I passed sixth grade, moved into middle school. Middle school seemed to be okay, but I was still this big, dorky, overgrown kid compared to everyone else. And again, I was constantly being made fun of. And that was really hard. Like I really, really struggled with my identity. Um, but again, during all this time, I still went to church and I did have morals and and I did feel like I always knew that there was a God. So for me, God was always there, but I didn't know him in a personal way. So anyways, that's my middle school years, awkward, dorky, made fun of. And then finally, I remember the summer between my eighth grade year and my freshman year, I had lost a lot of weight. I kind of grew into the, my body. I know more in that dorky puberty phase. I'm now, I'm full-fledged female and I knew it. Like I knew exactly where I stood. Um, I started noticing boys. There were a lot of things that going into high school, it was like, okay, this is, this is how life was gonna do. But I was also very naive um, in my train of thought. My family did not talk about boys. We didn't talk about the birds and the bees. We didn't talk about anything. But what I do remember growing up in the Catholic church, there were two things that were the ultimate sin. One was having sex before marriage and two, divorce. Divorce was not okay. And, I'll, and I point those two things out because those are two intricate things that lead further into my adult life. Um, and so if there's two things that I remember instinctively from that, the Catholic church was that sex before marriage was an absolute no. So I had a group of friends in high school that, that we really connected and about our, I would say once we started driving at 16, our junior year, we used to cruise up and down East Wash. So anybody who's listening to this and is older and is from Madison, you know exactly those days where everybody would go cruise the wash. And um, my girlfriends and I were one of them and we were all known as the virgins from some prairie because we both kind of had, we all had this outlook that we were not gonna have sex before marriage and we made that extremely clear. And that was my junior year. And I don't exactly remember, but I think it was my junior year. I also went to dance clubs. Um, there were dance clubs up in the Dells. There was a dance club in Sun Prairie and my girlfriends and I would go there. And of course it was just a big hookup place. And I'll be in honestly through dance clubs for like adults, but no, no, they were um, 18 and up. So, so you're still 16. Yeah. One night a week, they would have 16 and up nights. The one in Sun Prairie did. And then the one in Madison was 18 and up on Wednesday nights. And it was called Bullwinkles at the time. So my girlfriends and I, I didn't start going to that dance club until I was 18, my senior year. The one in the Dells on Saturday nights, anyone could go at any age. That's a so, terrible idea. I know it was really bad. I got myself into a few bad situations. Um, I remember the first time going to the dance club up in the Dells and my girlfriends and I would go up there. Our parents didn't approve of it because it was an hour drive, but we went up there and we said we were staying at each other's house. So we were out all night. And I remember this, the first time that we went up there and were invited to an after party, an after club party. And it was the first time I walked into a house and people were growing weed in their house. And that was all new to me. I had it drank 
up to this stage in my life. I hadn't done any drugs to the stage in my life. And so I walked into this after club party and there was weed there, there was alcohol, smoking. And I remember being very, very nervous. Okay. So going to these dance clubs kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things. And although still in high school, I didn't participate in any of this, it kind of started breaking the walls down in my life of saying sex, drugs, and alcohol are all okay. And that was just the beginning of opening my eyes to the idea that this was fun. I was seeing these people on a regular basis at the dance club. Nothing was happening to the ones that were sleeping around, smoking and drinking. You know, they by all outward appearances, everyone looked like they were doing okay. Um, so, you know, that kind of brings me up to then my senior year and my senior year, I had dated a guy who I'd met the summer before my senior year, we started dating and he was a guy that I thought I'm going to marry him. He was, a, came from a good household. His dad was a Baptist preacher in the Madison area. Um, However, we dated for a very short time and then he left for four years. He went into the Marines out in, in um, California and I was still a senior. He was a year older than me. Um, but I thought, oh, we're gonna last. And we definitely told the line with um, sexual experiences. And I wouldn't say that we didn't have intercourse but we definitely messed around, you know? And so that kind of started the ball rolling of that first step into a lifestyle that um, kind of defined a lot of the rest of my life. So needless to say, I dated this guy. He left for the Marines for four years. We didn't stick it out because it was my senior year. I wanted to have fun and we kind of broke up around Christmas in my senior year. Fast forward to about May of my senior year. It's senior skip day and my girlfriends and I decided that we were going to go to Bullwinkles, which was a dance club in Madison. It was a Wednesday night, it was 18 and up night. And we were gonna go that Wednesday night and then we were gonna skip Thursday because we were gonna stay out late. I have no idea what we told our parents. I know our parents didn't know, um, but we were out all night. So we went to Bullwinkles that night. And I remember, this is the nineties, mind you. Um, and, and I guess I probably should say this, by this time I was dressing in a manner that I knew I wanted to get attention from men. Uh, so a lot of people, you know, will say that women don't, don't contribute to men's um, struggles with like lust or the desire for women. And I would beg to differ because I think a lot of women know exactly what they're doing. And I was definitely one of them. And I remember going to this dance club this night and we were all dressed up and we were having fun. And I was being followed around by this guy. It was this big um, black guy with an Afro and he had a, he had a, um, back in the day, they had these picks that would stick out of their hair, the Afros. Like they would just put the pick in their hair and they'd walk around. And I remember being a little nervous because this was the first time I'd been around such a diverse crowd like this because this was the 18 and up night. I couldn't go to this particular dance club until I was 18. And so a guy walked past me 
at this dance club that night that I recognized from when my girlfriends and I would cruise East Wash. And I remember grabbing his arm and I said, hi. And he's like, hi. And um, the guy that was following me around stopped me to talk to me and said, who is this? And I said, this is my boyfriend. And it wasn't, wasn't my boyfriend. It was just somebody I'd recognized. Well, it ended up being um, my oldest son's father. So needless to say. That's the weirdest way to say that. What do you mean? That that guy ended up being your oldest son's father. I mean, yeah, I don't know. That's just we'll like get to weird. that. We'll get yeah. to that. So anyways, once I turned the other guy away, this guy and I started talking and we actually hit it off really well. He was really nice looking, um, tall, dark and handsome. And back then we didn't have cell phones. We had, we had pagers at one point, but no cell phones, nothing like that. And so at the end of the night, I gave him my phone number. I said, give me a call. And he didn't call. And so I didn't think anything of it until two weeks later, I went to East Town Mall in Madison because I worked at a retail store out there to go get my paycheck. And as I'm rounding the corner, he comes walking up and I was, I, at that point, if you stood me up, you asked for my phone number, didn't call me. I was just downright pissed. And I was, there's no way I was going to talk to you. And I remember him turning the corner and he's like, I'm sorry, I lost your number and blah, blah, blah. You know, all these lame excuses in my mind. And I was like, you know, I don't need to listen to this baloney. This is a waste of time. And I said, I said, you know, here's the deal. I'll give you one more chance. If you don't call me, that's it. Well, he did. He called me. And then from that night on, um, we started dating and we were together all the time. And basically at that point, I was still going to the Catholic church, still had the same belief that sex outside of marriage was wrong. And, um, this guy and I started, started dating pretty serious. And then about a month after I graduated high school, so the end of June, early July, I moved out of my parents' house to an apartment in Madison with another girl that I went to high school with. This girl and I did not um, know each other real well, but she was a big partier and drinker. And she had been drinking for a long time. And so as soon as I moved in with her, my life basically became drinking every weekend, partying. I was now dating this guy. He also was really big into drinking. Um, he had been actively involved with drugs, but once, but as we were dating, he had quit that drugs at the time. He was a smoker. Um, but basically the lifestyle from the time I turned 18 to the time I was 20, I would say those two years really defined a lot of my life and the difficulties I had going forward. So basically, I got out of high school. I started working part-time at American Family. I was going to school at MATC. At the time, I was living on my own in an apartment. I was dating this guy, and my weekends consisted of part, basically drinking. My drug of choice was drinking because I could drink. I was loud. I was obnoxious. I was the one on top of the bar screaming. We would do beer bongs. We would do keg. Uh, oh, what were they called? Keg stands. Stands, yeah. Yeah, keg stands. I mean, we just did all that. We had so. Back then, we thought we were having so much fun. I had a group of us that were always together, but that eventually led to to having sex with um, 
the guy I was dating. Um, but I remember after that happened, feeling a lot of guilt and shame. But I also was in a living, I was in a world that that was completely accepted. And so I was living with a roommate who, she, she was worse than I was. I at least had a boyfriend and was with one person. She was with somebody different all the time. And so the lifestyle I was living at the time, everything was accepted, drinking, drugs, sex, that's just what we did. I had signed a year's lease and at the end of my year's lease, I signed another lease um, with them for another year. During this time frame of partying, I also met another girl. Um, her name was Sarah and she started partying with a group, the same group that I did. And her and I became really good friends during this time too. And I share this with you because this comes into play later. So Sarah and I got together, we partied, we had a lot of fun along with this other group of people that I lived with. Um, we were with the same group every weekend. So after that first year, I signed another year's lease in about four or five months into that lease, um, I realized the guy that I was dating was also cheating on me with another girl. And I remember at that point in time, because in my mind, I had sex with this guy. This was the guy I was going to marry because that's just how it was. My mind was solidified that we had sex. We are going to get married someday. I, I, in my thought process, I thought I loved him, right? I thought that's what, this is what love was. We had done everything that married couples do. Why wouldn't that be the next step? And I really did want to get married at a young age. I wanted to get married. Um, but anyways, I found out he was cheating on me and I went absolutely ballistic. Like my world fell, like fell apart because I was like, how could somebody do that? Like once you commit to somebody, you're loyal to them. I'm a very loyal person. Um, and so I couldn't understand how somebody could go down this path and think that cheating was okay. I mean, why not just tell me this is done with? Um, so me being as dumb as I did, decided to stay with him for a little bit longer. And about two months later, he called it off. He just said, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I, I don't wanna be with you anymore and whatever. Well, once you have sex with somebody, you're attached to them in a way that it's not just we're done. You gave a piece of yourself to them. And so I was devastated. And there is something inside of me at that point that clicked and I thought, you know what? If you're going to play, this is my, this is my train of thought. And I don't think it's right by any way, shape or form. But I was like, if he's going to cheat on me, I am going to watch me. I'm going to play the field. I'm going to screw with every guy possible. And I made it my mission. My mission this is, is like your, uh, rebellion. This is my rebellion. Yeah. My rebellion kicked in. And my thought was, I'm going to one, I wanted to make him jealous. I wanted him to see that I could get other men too. Secondly, I went on a path of hating men. And so I wanted to use them. And I knew that if I went out to the, okay, I had a fake ID too at this point. So I wasn't 21 yet, but I would go out to the bars and I just wanted to use them. And so I would go out to the bars and I would drink all night 
but I would drink off of men. Like I would, I would mess with them. So they would pay for everything for me. Um, and then I went out of phase where basically I was a complete slut. I went ahead and I slept around with numerous men. I was using them. I did not like them. I was, they I was, were using you too. I, I think oh, that's fair to say. That is fair to say they definitely were, but I had no emotional attachment. Right. Like I disconnected completely from all of this because I was pissed at the world that I had given myself to somebody. I thought he cared about me. I wanted to be with him. I wanted to be married. And then he turned around and slept with someone else. And what I did is I allowed that bitterness to take root in my life. And then what I did is I spent the next like four or five months on a complete rebellious like bender thinking that I was getting back at somebody else, but really what I was doing, I was self-destructing. And so I, uh, I went on this bender. Uh, my friend Sarah at the time was a, a student up at UW Oshkosh. And I remember once I found out that this guy was cheating on me, um, kind of my whole living situation just kind of went south. Even though I was still partying even harder at this point in time, something inside of me wasn't right. Like it wasn't, something was, was kind of rattling me inside. And during this whole time of living on my own, I quit going to church on Sundays. So once I graduated high school, I quit going to church. But during this time period, I wondered if my life was falling apart because I didn't go to church. And that maybe this guy left, this guy cheated on me because I wasn't in church. And I remember getting up a couple Sundays and going and sitting in, I think it was St. Dennis on the East side, Catholic church, and just going in there and sitting because I felt like in my mind, I think it was God telling me I needed to get back in church so I could get the things that I wanted, right? So I went back to church thinking, this is why my life is such a mess right now. But in the same token, I go to church but I was still partying, drinking, going to the bars, using men. You go to uh, church hungover. Yes, I would go to church hungover. But I was going. And that's how I grew up. As long as you went, you were okay with God. Yeah. The whole point of going to church was so you could go to heaven someday and you'd be okay with God. But if you miss church, you were not okay anymore. Okay. And so I ended up starting to go to church. And I realized that my living situation was a mess. And one night I remember going to the bars with my roommate and a couple other people. And they left me downtown at the bars, completely left me, didn't even tell me they were doing it. I was down there by myself. I didn't know how I was going to get home. And I remember, and something clicked that night. And I was like, these people aren't my friends who can just leave somebody downtown. So I got home and I called my mom and I said, I'm come, I, can I come back home? And she said, yeah. And I went home that night and the next day I got up and I got myself off my lease at my apartment and I moved out. And I remember that very first night back at my parents' home and it was quiet. Um, I got eight hours of sleep, which I hadn't gotten in about a year and a half because we partied on the weekends. We partied at night. We partied all the time. I mean, I would go to work drunk at times. And um, I remember sleeping and just thinking, 
I don't remember what it's like to get sleep. I didn't remember what that was like. And that first night I got up and I was just like, I felt like a different person. However, I still, I still really struggled with where I was at life in my life. And during this time frame, I still worked at this point, I worked full time because I had dropped out of MATC. I went to spring break and never came back and um, got a full-time job where I was working part-time. At this point, I moved back in with my parents. I would work full-time. And then on the weekends, I would still hook up with my friends and go party and get drunk all weekend. Like that was just, that was acceptable in my household growing up. Is that if you worked hard, then you deserve to go out to the bars on the weekends. Um, that was my parents' lifestyle. And that became my lifestyle. And so although things were more calm living with my parents and I wasn't around the party scene 24 seven, I still did participate on the weekends. The, during these weekends, when I was living at my parents, I, instead of hanging out with the same people at my apartment all the time, I would drive up to Oshkosh and party with my friend, Sarah. And, um, and I would have so much fun. And I remember one weekend going up there and this, this is when it really started turning ugly for me. I got really, really drunk. And I ended up in a town outside of Oshkosh at a house I didn't know with a guy I didn't know. And I remember waking up and him telling me that his dad was in prison. And I was like, how did I get here? How did I end up at this house? I don't have any recollect. I didn't recall any of it. And um, I remember calling my friend Sarah and I'm like, you got to come get me. And she's like, where are you? I'm like, I don't even know where to tell you I'm at. And so I had to give the phone over to this guy and I'm like, tell her, tell her how to get, come get me. I never saw this guy again, nothing. I didn't do any of that. And I went home that day going, what is wrong with you? How did you get to this point? And I was like, okay, I can't go up to Oshkosh for a few more weekends. I need to stay away. I need to just stay back at home. Well, during, during this time frame of not going up to Oshkosh, this was, how did this work? I started hanging out again with my old roommates and things. And they invited us to a party, myself and I was with some other friends and we showed up at this party and my ex-boyfriend was there. And I remember he was drunk and I was drunk and I was like, okay, one more, one more time, one more rendezvous before we each go our own way. And so that night we ended up having sex, the whole shabiel, And I was like, that's it. And, um, and uh, I didn't think I'd ever see him again. I didn't think I'd really talk to him again. It was kind of my like, this is it. Although I still really liked him and wanted to be with him. Neither, I, I knew he wasn't, he wasn't into me, but I had hoped that by maybe sleeping together again, that would draw him back to wanting me. Does that make sense? And I think a lot of women do that. They think that if they turn around and have sex with somebody that's going to make the guy want them back uh, which that never works i don't think it ever works no it doesn't um yeah. so then we fast forward six weeks after that party and we're coming up on saint patty's day and a girlfriend of mine was like hey you want to go downtown madison and 
we can go party for St. Patty's Day. And I said, absolutely. And I remember going down to Wando's and we got their fish bowl. Now, mind you, I was still not of age. I was using a fake ID. We went to Wando's, we got the fish bowl. Her and I sucked that down. We got so drunk that night, but we had so much fun. I remember getting in my car. I drove home that night and I was like, you drove home drunk? Absolutely. I was completely That's drunk. Stupid. And I will. I know that now. Um, we were laughing the whole way, too, because I was driving like like a grandma because I was like, I can't get caught. And she's like, you're driving better drunk than you do sober. We didn't know what we were doing. It was so dumb. That's probably true, though. He, yeah, you drive yeah. like terrible. <laughs> right. So. right. And this weekend, my grandparents happened to be staying at my parents' house. I was still living with my parents at this time because my parents were in Vegas. And my grandparents were there because I, my sister was six years younger than me and um, they were kind of helping take care of her. So I remember getting home that night. I went to bed. I got up the next morning and I was sicker than a dog. I mean, I was so sick. And I mind you all the last, over the last couple of years prior to this, I was not one that ever got a hangover. I didn't get hung over all the time. My party, nothing. This particular night, I was supposed to go, so we went out and I was really, really sick on that Saturday. This Saturday, I was supposed to go with San, well, my son's dad, um, who again, we were broken up, but we started talking after that night. I was supposed to go to a rave with him in Milwaukee and he was back onto some really hardcore drugs. drugs he was on like uh, Coke and like, Right. He was on a Coke lot of really, yes. So anyways, this Saturday, after I'd gone out for St. Patty's Day, I was supposed to go with him to a rave and I had made it up in my mind that I was going to try acid. I thought, okay, well, if sex isn't going to draw back to me, maybe if I get into his um, realm of doing acid, he would want me, right? Okay. Sex, drugs, alcohol. Like I really, that's how badly I wanted to be with him because we had had that connection. I didn't know that. I did not. That's, that's might be the dumbest thought process I've ever heard in my life. I know, but you I was going to do acid to get a guy. Well, that's, that's what he was into. And the girl that he had left me for was a drug addict. And I was like, okay, what's this? That is absolutely crazy. I, you had, I did not know that. Yep. That so, is the, so the plan oh. was that that Saturday I was going to go to that rave with him and I was gonna trip on acid and we had talked about it, but I was so sick, so sick from the night before that there was no way I could go. And I just called him and I was like, I can't go. I went out last night, I am so sick, I can't do this. Cause so I was like, the last thing I can do is drive to Milwaukee and get in a car. And so another friend of mine, a, a guy friend of mine had a party that night and he's like, why don't you come to the party? And I'm like, I can't even function, but he's like, just come. So I went and I remember not drinking because even the smell of alcohol, I was going to puke. And I just, I was a disaster that whole weekend. So I get back from the party, didn't drink, didn't do anything, went to bed, got up Sunday morning. I'm still sick. Okay. I'm still sicker than a dog. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? I've never been this sick turn around, go to work on Monday, my full-time job. I also, at this point in time, worked a part-time job out at the mall at a retail store. So I went to my full-time job. And then that night I went to work in the retail job right after my full-time job. And I still wasn't feeling good. I was nauseous, but I went. And one, 
while I was at the retail store, a girl I went to school walked past and she was pregnant and she was probably like seven months along and her stomach was huge. And at that moment, I remember going into complete and utter fear because I was like, I bet I'm pregnant. I bet I'm pregnant. That's why I'm so sick. And so I called another girlfriend of mine and I said, I need to come over to your house and take a pregnancy test before I go home. Because my grandparents are at my house staying with my sister. My parents are in Vegas at this point in time. And I desperately need to take a pregnancy test. Now, mind you, the guy that I was dating, his family is a family of Christian believers. Well, your ex, the ex guy. The ex, yeah. yeah. The ex guy. His family were Christians. And so I had heard on and off them talk about faith. I knew they went to ch different church. I had attended their church with them that was Lake City at the time. And it was definitely different than the Catholic church. So there were a few things that um, during that relationship, although him and I were extraordinarily dysfunctional, his family started planting the seeds of, of Christianity in my life, even though their son and I were completely in a corrupt relationship. So anyways, back to that Monday night, I get done working in retail, go over to my girlfriend's house and I take my test and not even a second later, I was pregnant. And I remember sitting there completely numb. It explained why I was sick. It explained why I was still sick. And then I was like, I need to call, call my ex and let him know. And I remember making that phone call. And again, a little bit of hope inside of me. There was a little hope thinking, okay, well now I'm pregnant with this kid. Maybe, maybe, just maybe he's gonna want me back now, right? So I called him and I said, hey, I don't even know how the conversation went. The only thing I remember of that conversation was I get paid on Friday, I can help pay for an abortion. Okay, that's it, done deal. We're gonna fix the problem by Friday. I don't have to worry about this. So I get home. And the next day I was like, I don't remember if I went to work or I called into work. I don't remember what happened, but I remember calling my friend, Sarah, who was up in Oshkosh. And I told her that I was pregnant and that um, she remember her asking me what I was gonna do. And I said, well, I talked to my ex and I am going to try to schedule an abortion for Friday. And I remember her on the phone with me, begging me, begging me, to call her mom. I'm like, why would I, and I, in my mind, I'm like, why am I going to call your mom when you haven't even told your mom, I haven't even told my mom. Yeah. I haven't told I haven't told anyone except for my girlfriend that was there. That saw the positive test plus my ex. That's all I've told. She, she's begging me to call her mom. Finally, I said, fine, I'll call your mom. So I think I went into work and I left work early because I couldn't think of anything other than the fact that I was pregnant. Well, I called her mother. Her mother said, can you come down to this place that was downtown Madison on Monroe Street and come talk to me? And I said, sure. And she, I said, what's the name of the place? And she says, CareNet. My friend Sarah's mom happened to be the director of CareNet. Um, her name is Liz. And some of you may know her, some of you may not. And I remember thinking, okay, I'll go talk to her. What do I have to lose, right? I remember walking into CareNet on Monroe Street and Liz was there and there was no judgment. There was no, no anything other than 
I believe that she prayed with me. She walked me through what an abortion was. She walked me through, well, she walked me through all my options. You know, you can give your child up for an adoption. You can keep your child. And if I keep my child, there's a lot of resources that can help me, or I can have an abortion. And they had like these videos on all three of them or something to that extent. But I remember sitting there and when she showed me what an abortion actually was, and I remember the picture in my mind that it was like a vacuum and they would suck your child out of you to basically kill it. So it was no longer in you. And I remember that image sitting with me that like, how could I be such a wretched person and just have my child sucked out of me, right? And that was such an image for me that once I knew the facts of what my options were, it gave me the strength to decide what was the best choice for myself. And I'm a very bullheaded and strong person. And once I make a decision, nobody's going to turn, nobody's going to be able to change my mind. And I remember walking out of CareNet and there was no way in hell I was going to abort my child anymore. It didn't matter what anyone said to me. I wasn't a believer still, but I was not aborting them. And I knew that if I carried this child to term, I wasn't going to be able to give it up for adoption because that just, I, I, if I was going to deliver this child, I was going to keep it. And so I walked out of CareNet that day, um, no longer going to have an abortion. Uh, I, first thing I did is I went to the retail store that I worked at. They had a back office there and I called my parents at the hotel and I remember sitting there telling them that I was pregnant and mind you, growing up in the Catholic church, having sex before marriage was one of the worst things. And now I was going to have a child out of wedlock. That also put a lot of guilt and a stigma on who I now was in the Catholic church. And so my parents took a red eye home that night or they said they were going to take a red eye home and they would see me tomorrow. And I told them that I'd gone to talk to Liz and that they might want to talk to her too. And believe it or not, I don't know how this all went down, but my parents reached out to her. And when they got off the plane, they went directly to CareNet too. I was not there. I don't know what happened in those conversations. I don't know any of that. But what I do know is that once I made that phone call to my parents who were in Vegas, I then went over to my ex's parents' house and I told his mom myself. His mom was a believer and the first thing that she asked me was, are you going to keep it? And I was able to say yes. And she was relieved and, and I think happy that I was keeping it, but also probably very concerned. Um, she I just remember having that conversation and it being difficult because I had to do it on my own. Um, I hadn't even let my ex know that I had decided to keep it because in my mind, he didn't want my son, right? He was going to help with an abortion. At this point, I was making all the decisions on my own. There was no more us. This was, I'm making this decision and I have to do what I have to do. And when I get into that mode, I'm a type B personality, but then I'm also A. And when I make a decision, I will make this decision full-fledged and you're not gonna change my mind. And when I made that decision, nobody was gonna change my mind. So needless to say, I went home after telling his mom and I knew my grandparents knew because I walked in and it was really awkward. They were sitting there 
my parents were coming home and then we met my parents the next day at Imperial Gardens on East Washington. And I remember my mom and dad walking in after they had gone to Carinet and my dad's eyes were red. My dad never cries. My dad, I hadn't seen my dad cry at all. And I remember the guilt I had and I still feel that when I talk about it. Don't make me cry. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying not to cry. So, <laughs> yeah. So that guilt that I had, you grew up in the Catholic church and you have so much guilt. And then to see your parents, not only did I give that stigma for myself, my parents now have a child in the Catholic church who had sex before marriage and who, who now is going to have a child out of wedlock. And for some reason, that just killed me. And I remember that being kind of the beginning of my, kind of the beginning of my journey. I feel like CareNet started planting those seeds because Liz kind of became the mother that I, the Christian mom, the mother with a, a faith that, that I didn't have. She would meet with me regularly at CareNet she was, she was very supportive of me. And so was Jackie, who was my ex's aunt. Um, both of them would supported me a lot through my pregnancy. My parents really tried, but they were dealing, I think with their own, I think their own kind of like failures or whatever it was. And mind you, my parents were good people. We lived in a middle-class neighborhood, upper middle class, you know, we were pretty well, we were decently well off and their life was work and then they would go out with their friends. And so I didn't, they were trying to be supportive. I lived at their house, but I think emotionally supportive was not there. And so Liz and Jackie were two intricate people who are both believers. Jackie my, was my ex's aunt and Liz was the director at CareNet at the time. And I remember them both being supportive, talking to me about different things, sharing their faith. But I wasn't on board at this point in time. Um, when I was pregnant, I remember my life consisted of working full-time and then I would go from a full-time job. I switched to a different part-time job. And so I basically worked 10 hours a day and then I'd go home and sleep and get back up and do the same thing. And I, I believe during probably half of my pregnancy, I was pretty depressed because I was like, how did I get to this point in my life? It's not where I wanted to be. So anyways, um, this is harder than I thought. <laughs> uh, what did I do then? So anyways, my life being pregnant was pretty tame. I couldn't drink. I mean, I quit drinking cold turkey. I quit partying. I didn't want to go anywhere. I did have one really good friend. I mean, when you become pregnant, you realize really who your friends are. I had a couple of good girlfriends that stuck by me. One who had already had a child um, after high school and one who just continually called. And then I had a guy friend who he would just show up at my doorstep and say, get in the car, we need to get out. And I think if it wasn't for them, I think I would have been even more depressed. But they kind of kept me going. So during my entire pregnancy, I didn't talk to my ex at all. Uh, I did. He was really mad at me because I went and told his mom on my own. 
So he was mad at me. And mind you, he was still heavily in drugs. And so I didn't, um, I, I just didn't have a lot of contact with him. And at some point I just made the decision that, you know, I can't keep going down this route. I was sober. So I saw things a little differently. Um, I was having a child and he was doing hardcore drugs. I was actually waiting to get a phone call to say that he had died off of drugs. Um, so my nine months of pregnancy was pretty lonely, pretty depressing. And then about two months before my son was due, I get a phone call from my ex saying, I really wanna try to work things out. Um, you know, can we meet up and talk? And we did meet up and talk. And he actually went with me to Karenet at that point in time and talked to Liz. And I think he was trying for his mom's sake, but not for his own. Um, so the last two months of my pregnancy, we were kind of talking and I thought things were going well. And then when I, when it was November of, November of that year, um, right after Thanksgiving or right before, yeah, right after Thanksgiving, when Aaron was born, and his, my ex was there with me when I, when I had Aaron and along with my mom and two of my good girlfriends that stuck by me. So we were all there. And I remember his, I remember going into labor and I was scared, you know, I was young. I was 20. I had Aaron five days before my 21st birthday and I didn't know what to expect. And I remember it being, we had a snowstorm. We were driving into St. Mary's and um, my dad, I believe my dad drove us, my mom. So I mean, my parents were supportive and I remember getting there and my ex was there. My two girlfriends was there. I remember playing Euchre at a table. It was kind of like a big party. I was still not a believer, but I, I remember, how did that go? I remember being in labor and Aaron was 10 and a half pounds when he was born. Mind you, I was 20. I had a 10 and a half pound kid. I had back labor. I was in severe pain. I was petrified. Um, and I just remember having this nurse who was really gruff. Like she would bark orders at me, telling me what to do. And my rebellious, my rebellion would even kick in there. And I was like, lady, stop being a jerk. I'm pregnant, you know, but she was being that way because Aaron was, um, we were having a lot of difficulties maintaining his heart rate because he was so big. And it was kind of like this lady was in my face telling me everything I had to do just to save my, my own kid. And I was, I remember fighting back at her because I didn't understand why she was being kind of mean. But I ended up having Aaron and I remember it being a huge party. Like, and well, they were going to do a C-section because he was so big. Well, yeah. Or that was I, an option if you didn't push out. Well, well, I don't know. Yes, they uh I was in labor and I was they were having me push and Aaron got stuck and his heart rate was plummeting because he wasn't getting enough oxygen. And they pulled out um four of these to me they look like gigantic scissors. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, what in the heck are they doing? And they said if you can't, they said, we need to use these because he's struggling otherwise. And at this point they had cleared everybody out of the room except for my mom. And I had a whole team of specialists in my room. I had probably 25 doctors standing in my room because there were so many complications because Aaron was so big. 
And they pulled out these things called forceps that look like giant scissors. And I said, do me a favor. I said, let me try one more time and don't use those because they scared the living crap out of me. <laughs> and that's all it took was scaring me enough. And I finally got them out. And all I remember is my mom. So my mom was there. I shouldn't say that my ex was there, but everybody else had to clear the room. And I remember my mom when Aaron was born, I don't, didn't know what she was doing at the time, but she ran over to the doctor and they took Aaron from me super fast. Um, and at this point I was just relieved. I've been in labor. I don't even know how long and people were eating donuts in front of me and I couldn't eat it because I was throwing up and I had back labor. And all I was like, was like, give me a freaking donut. I didn't care if my, I could hear my kid crying. I just wanted the donut at that point in time. Yeah. But anyways, that does not I, surprise me at all. I, yeah, me either. So anyways, Aaron was born and my mom brought him over to me. And the reason she had taken him is because he was so big that he had such a cone head that they put a hat on his head before bringing him to me because I was so young and I was so into how I was more concerned that my son was going to be a, a, a nice looking kid than whether he was healthy. I mean, I was a very shallow person. Okay. I was all about looks and his, his head was so pointed that my mom was like, just put a hat on him, you know? And then anyways, that just kind of told me how shallow I was. So I remember that, that night, once they got Aaron all cleaned up and once they got me all situated, they put me in a room and my parents and my sister, and, you know, I had friends through the whole night and my ex was there with me. And, um, it was him and I, and Aaron and about 10 30 at night, he's like, well, I'm going to leave. And I'm like, where are you going? And he's like, well, I just have some friends I have to meet up with. And I was like, what? Like, I thought we were back together and he was going to stay there. And he did, he left, he went to a party. I don't know what he did, but he partied the whole night. And I can't remember if he didn't, I don't think he came back that night. I think I was there myself. And I just remember feeling in this room where I just had a child. This is what you do when you have a family. And it was just me sitting there. I remember feeling completely alone and I took Aaron home, but Aaron was like, Aaron, I could hold Aaron for hours and he loved it. He's, you know, you could, I could just hold him. And I remember holding him all the time. My mom's saying, Carrie, you're going to spoil him. He's never going to want to be put down. And I just remember being in awe that this was my kid, right? So we take him home and I'm on this new path of trying to be a mom, but I'm, you know, I just, I'm tired. I am still recuperating. And I remember my 21st birthday it was five days after I had Aaron. And I remember I remember my dad saying to me, well, do you want to go out? And I was like, did he just ask me if I want to go out for my 21st birthday? I just had a kid and I didn't go. But two weeks later, two of my good friends, the guy that I said would come and take me out once in a while while I was pregnant and my friend, Sarah, they both turned 21, two weeks later. And I remember going out for their birthday and that kind of started, started the next year of my life back to working, drinking, and now trying to raise a kid while I'm working and drinking. And I remember, um, I remember that starting the beginning then, like I could drink again. I could party with my friends. It'd been, it'd been nine months since I couldn't because I was pregnant. And, and um, so that was the first night that I started drinking. And I, so I, my, first year of my life, like I would work full-time. I worked part-time one night a week waiting tables now so I could pay for daycare. 
And then I would hire a sitter on the weekend so I could go out one night a week with my friends. But that one night a week, Saturday night, I would get so drunk that Sunday it would take me a while to get back up to par. And now I'm raising a child. And during this whole time, I continued to keep my relationship open with Liz at CareNet. And, you know, her and I would meet once in a while and it was okay. It wasn't anything major, but it was, Aaron was born in November and then October of the following year. So from November to October, I spent my, that's how I spent my life. I was working full-time, working one part-time job, and then I'd go out drinking on the weekends and I was trying to raise a kid. I was not a good mom at all. And I look back at that time and I like wasted so much of my time. And I'm, I'm grateful for my parents because they really helped, um, helped raise Aaron. And I remember my dad being Aaron's dad in a lot of ways during that time. Cause Aaron didn't have a dad. His dad wasn't around. His dad was too busy partying and living his life. And my dad was Aaron's, Aaron's male role model. And a lot of things happened during that first year. Aaron's dad had given me a ton of clothes for Aaron. He worked at um, Burlington at the time, given me a bunch of clothes from Burlington. And I was like, wow, you know, he's trying to support him. However, I had the FBI show up at my parents' house because all the clothes he had given me were stolen. And so um, there was a huge investigation that went on during that time frame, And I was a part of that. And I remember when they came and took all of Aaron's clothes. My dad put me in the car and he took me out and bought Aaron all new clothes. And so it was definitely, it was a challenge, but he definitely took on that role. And my parents never held it against him. They didn't like my ex and they had reason not to like him, but they definitely helped out. Um, and so I just remember having to go through this investigation you know, I still, I still, there was a part of me during this time frame that I still wanted to be with Aaron's dad. Why? I don't know. I don't know why, other than we, I now had a kid with this guy. So it's now, I remember it being October of the following year. Aaron is almost a year old and it was Halloween. And a girlfriend and I decided to go out on Halloween and party at a local bar in Sun Prairie. And we, I remember us having these costumes made of like a dinosaur. They were the coolest costumes. And you go out and you do these costume parties. And I went out that night and this bar in Sun Prairie was kind of like a sports bar and it kind of, it became our hangout. And I remember going out that night, wondering why, like, my, my girlfriend met a guy, another girl that we were out with, they all met these guys. And that night I didn't meet any. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, why am I not meeting anyone? And at this point I had such low self-esteem because I was a single parent. I had a lot of guilt. Um, I, didn't, I didn't feel good about myself because I was living at my parents. I had just this job I was barely getting by with. 
I was drinking every weekend. I didn't have any direction in my life and I had no clue what I was going to do. And I wasn't even a good mom, but I didn't even put those pieces together until later at a later date. During that first year of Aaron's life, I remember going to a bachelorette party for a good girlfriend of mine. And I came home that night so drunk and Aaron had woke up and wanted, needed to get him a bottle. And I put the bottle in the microwave and I, I almost blew it up. My mom walked out and is like, what are you doing? And I put the bottle in for so long that, that I was like burning the plastic. And so the house smelled and my mom's like, you go to bed, I will take care of them. I mean, that's how horrible I was my first year as a parent. I went to spring break that year and my my parents watched Aaron part of spring break and my ex's mom watched him part of spring break and I went down and partied nuts like on spring break and came back and I remember Aaron just had this glaze looking at me like who are you and I was like what you know all these moments in my life that I continued to party I would question who are you like why are you doing this but that Halloween was a pivoting point. Um, I met this guy, like the next time we went out to this local bar and I started kind of dating this bar. I don't want to say dating. I was hooking up with a bartender. Let's put it that way. I now had a kid um, and I didn't want to hook up with anyone else. The last thing I wanted to be was this lady who had multiple kids from multiple guys, but that, that's all I knew as life. Like that was the only excitement I thought I had in my life. I had low self-esteem, so I met this local bartender. I was hooking up with him, and I was still meeting with Liz, um, but I had made the decision I was no longer going to drink after that Halloween. I was like, I'm done drinking, and I remember telling my friends, I'm not drinking anymore because I don't make good decisions when I drink, right? And uh, I thought I was being good, and I was, at this point in time, I'd also gotten asked to go to High Points. It was called Hoyt Park Connection. And it was for college age students. And Liz had told me about it. And she had a friend named Annie who had gone and Annie had reached out to me and asked if I wanted to go. Well, I didn't know Annie. And this was really weird to go to a church group. And it wasn't a Catholic church group. So I kind of like dragged my feet for a while about going for a few weeks. And Annie was persistent. She kept asking me to go and Liz kept saying, Carrie, why don't you just try it for something different? And I finally got to the point that going, when you go to the bars and you don't get drunk, it's not fun anymore. I mean, you're, everybody else is drunk and you're driving them home and it's not fun anymore. Yeah. It's extremely annoying. So finally I decided, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to go to this high point church. I don't know where it is. Um, and I'm going to try this Hoyt park for college age students. And I'm just going to see what it's like. And I remember, um, it was a, this had to be God completely working in my life because I was a social person. I was scared to give up my friends because I was so social that I, I wanted to, um, I didn't want to be alone. I, I was scared to be alone. I had low self-esteem and I, I just, that was the last thing I wanted. And I walked into Hoyt Park and I met a group of girl women that like there was an instant connection between this group of women and I and I was like this is pretty cool and they started asking me to do stuff so like on the weekends we would go to like the bowling alley and we would bowl and it was a place where I could bring Aaron with who was almost one and I put him in his little like 
little stroller and wheel them on in and people weren't drinking and getting drunk. We were bowling, we were having fun and they would, you know, help out with Aaron. And one time that we went roller skating and I remember taking Aaron's little um, walker and I put him in the walker and we had a little um, rope and we'd roller skate around with Aaron in the walker and in the rink at that point in time was fine with it. But it was like very innocent, fun things that I could participate in and have a good time without getting drunk. And I didn't know that there was a life like that outside of there and that there is actually people that seemed genuinely good people now I gotta tell you this group that I met back then none of us had it perfect none of us were good they they were struggling with a lot of things they were dealing with sins in their life but God put them in my life because we connected at that point in time and I wasn't ready to walk away from my old friends yet. So I would still hang out with these people from High Points Hoyt Park, but I was still hanging out with my old friends, but I wasn't drinking and I was not having sex at this point in time or hooking up or anything. So I felt like I was doing in a really good place. I was doing good. And I remember meeting with Liz one time and Liz looked at me, or this was during this time frame. Liz and I sat down and I was talking to her about things and she finally looked at me and she said, Carrie, you have one foot in the world and one foot, God's one foot in church. You can't have both. And, and I was like, what? She go, and she shared the gospel with me. She told me it's about a relationship with Jesus. You know, she had shared the gospel with me multiple times, but that statement she was and I, in my mind, I was doing very good. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't having sex. Yes, I was going to the bars with my old friends. And yes, I was going to a church group. I was on a path of doing really good. And when she said that to me, she was like, you can't have both worlds. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you're out still hanging at the bars with all these old people who they're not going to help you with your faith. And yet you're still going to high point. Like, and I, I remember leaving her house and I was pissed that she said that to me because I'm like, don't you see the strides I've made? But, and I, and I left there and again, my rebellion kicked in. And that next weekend, I went down to the local bar. I started drinking. The bartender that I hooked up with, he was there and he's like, you want to go to an after bar party? And I'm like, you better believe I do. And Aaron was with his dad at this time. Um, his dad started taking him every once in a while on the weekend. And this happened to be one of the weekends. And so I went down to the bar, was drunk. And he's like, let's go to, and I, cause I was mad. I was like, I was doing so good. And now you're calling me out and telling me that I, that I need to be even better. Like what's wrong with this picture? And that night I was drunk. The bar was closing. The bartender's like, here's my keys, go sit in my car. And he said, I'll be out in a second. I just have to clean up the bar. I'm like, okay. So I get in the car. I sit down. I looked in his back seat and there's a Bible sitting in his back seat. Now, mind you, I'm drunk. I can't even read what it is. And immediately I felt inside of me, I was so angry. I was so angry. I'm like, why is there a Bible there? I felt like God was following me. I really felt like God was following me and he wouldn't leave me alone. And then, so I picked up the Bible and I was like, well, I'm not going to ask him why this Bible's here, but I'm mad about it. So I put it back on his back seat and the bartender gets in the car and me with my big mouth, I can't keep it closed. And I said, why do you have a Bible in your back seat? And I pulled it out and I handed it to him. I said, why is this here? And he looked at me like I was half 
crazy, but he's like, I have a very, I have one of my really good friends from New York sent me the Bible. He became a born again Christian. And he said, he says that he said something about having faith in Jesus. I don't even remember what it was, but I remember seeing the letter that his friend had written to him in the Bible. But again, I, I was too drunk to read the words, but he, this bartender kind of, I don't want to say he shared the full gospel, but he shared again about Jesus and about how his friend became a born again Christian. And all those words I was familiar with because Liz and Jackie, my ex's aunt, had both shared the gospel with me prior to all this. And so that fueled my fire of rebellion even more that he said his, told me that whole story about his best friend. So then we go to this after bar party. I get stoned. It was sex, drugs, and alcohol all night. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I don't really care. And I was just fueling that rebellious fire in me again. So the next morning I get up and the party was at a duplex that was about a mile away from my parents' home. I didn't have my car because I rode with him. So I start walking home and it hit me as I'm walking home. I am that girl. I am that, this is the post party. People were driving past. I look like complete and utter hell because I'm coming off of a bender from the night before. And I was like, you are that disgusting person that thinks that their life is going okay, but you are an utter disaster and you are raising a child in this mess. And so my walk home was like the walk of shame, complete and utter shame. And I made the decision from that night on that I was done. I walked away from all of my old friends. I no longer talked to them. I didn't associate with them. Um, I cut myself off completely from them. And I continued to go to Hoyt Park at High Point. And I continued to hang out with a group of friends that, that, um, that, uh, that were at High Point. So we kept hanging out. And I don't honestly have a point in my life where I said this big prayer or I went on this long thing, but I believe that that was the point when I decided to choose Jesus for my life over the world. Do you know what I mean? I took my other foot out of the world and I was fully immersed in church and decided this is how it was going to go. I started reading a Bible that Liz had given to me. I, the only, I remember the verse that really always stuck out to me. And I think it's in Romans. Um, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Paul, Paul talking um, in Romans, but yeah, why do I, I do what I don't want to do. Yeah. I don't do what I want to do. Right. Yeah. That verse was a verse that stuck with me for a long time during that. When I started reading the Bible, I didn't have anyone discipling me or telling me what to read in the Bible. I would just open it up and read it. And I remember that verse being like, exactly. I'm doing everything that I don't want to do. So I started going to High Point Church too, which kind of Put a little bit of a conflict for my parents because it wasn't a Catholic church. And so they didn't understand, but they also were just glad that I was getting back into a church. So I was still living at my parents' house at this point in time, and we were coming up on Aaron's first birthday. And I made this decision to be done. And shortly after Aaron's first birthday, I moved out. Um, I rented one room out of a duplex. Aaron and I moved out with one of the girls that I met at High Point. I was still a disaster, mind you. Um, although I wasn't drinking anymore, I had no clue how to be a mom. I didn't know what to do. I feel like I look at those times 
those months when I moved to that duplex and the neglect that Aaron went through um, was horrible. And so uh, I was a believer, but you don't change overnight. And all you have is what you know. And so Aaron, Aaron really took a, a, he had a difficult first year in his life. It wasn't easy. And now I moved him away from the only male role model he knew. And then also the support my mom gave him. So he's now in a, a duplex with just me and I am I'm not a good mom still. So anyways, I am a believer. I do believe at this time I'm a believer. I'm hanging out with better people and I'm starting to get my life on track and I'm going to, so I'm going still to High Point. And I walk in one day to Hoyt Park and there is Ty. Ty and I went to high school together. Um, we knew each other. We actually both failed uh, lit comp one year and had spent time in summer school. So it's like we knew each other, but we were in completely different groups in high school. Back in high school, mind you, I didn't drink. I was, I played sports. I was, didn't believe in sex. You know, Ty was the opposite. He would hung out with the bad kids. So when I walked in and saw him at High Point in like a matter of like five seconds, I spilled my entire life story because I was like, the last thing I wanted to see was somebody from my high school see me walk into church, right? So I thought I might as well just get it out of the way, tell them everything about myself and then move on and keep going, right? Uh, so anyways, Ty started hanging out with the group of, at this point, it grew to guys and girls. There was a whole group of guys and girls that were hanging out from High Point and Ty started hanging out with us. And um, although I was still a believer, I was now part of this good church group. I still struggled with a lot of low self-esteem. I had the stigma that nobody was going to want me because I was, um, I had a kid. Uh, there was no guy that was going to want to marry me because I had a kid. And my self-esteem and who, who I used to be, I was no longer that person. I'm sure I was new in Christ, but I was the extremely damaged goods coming because two years of my life took me from somebody who was relatively confident and decent in high school to a complete and utter mess and didn't even know who, who I was. Um, and I was disgusted by myself. I didn't like myself, but I was moving in a path that was, that I knew was better. And so there was a whole group of us that kept hanging out during this time frame, and Ty and I, at one point, decided we would start dating. Um, and we dated for about a month. I don't know. I don't even know how long. It was such a short period of time. But then we broke up. Um, he kind of walked away, and we didn't talk for like a month. And then he showed up at my house on a motorcycle with a friend and introduced me as his girlfriend. And I thought he was on crack. I was like, who is this guy? Like, what is he thinking? And why would he introduce me after a month of being broken up as his girlfriend? And so it was a very- This is, people are gonna need to get the counseling, counseling after, after they listen, listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, yeah. I'm just thinking of my dad driving up in a motorcycle, trying to act cool. being like, this is my girlfriend and, and being like, 
you know, and you've been like, that's not even true. I don't, that just sounds like such a stupid thing he would do. It, well, and he, he was awkward. I mean, so awkward in the essence of social skills um, yeah. and different things. But in my mind, somebody was interested in me. Somebody didn't care that I had a kid and they liked me. And I, I was so desperate. I, and I say this because that's who I was. I was at such a low point that I was so desperate for anybody to want me. And I wanted a family so bad. I had Aaron. I didn't want to be a single mom. That when, when he came back and called me his girlfriend, I remember having that discussion, like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, we didn't have much of a discussion, but he told me his mom had felt like it was her fault that we broke up because we were going to get married. We had talked about marriage and he kind of proposed. And then my dad kind of took over planning everything. And then Ty broke everything off. And then I thought it was done. And then his mom, Ty's mom, thought she's had something to do with it. So anyways, that leads us into, into us getting married. Ty's mom had given us a gift certificate to go out to Red Lobster. And mind you, Ty was an alcoholic. He came from an alcoholic home. I am just at this point. Was he an alcoholic? I don't think he was. No, he wasn't drinking anymore at this point. Um, But we both had sketchy backgrounds. And anyways, we went out to Red Lobster and we thought we would order a glass of wine. They didn't have the kind of wine we wanted. So that out of gratitude from the waitress, she brought us a craft of wine that then led into a Ty and I had going on a bender of drinking for a night. And that decision um then led into us taking off two days later and getting married in Chicago and so I would definitely well to clarify when you guys drank too much you guys ended up doing other things that were stupid sexually and I think my dad he felt guilty he felt guilty and he was like we need to get married basically right and in my mind we did not have sex. I, I, I need to clarify. You guys did There was, it wasn't vaginal sex. Well, it, sure. but it, but it was intercourse and this is right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, you guys did things. You broke a sexual, out. you se- it yes, was sexual sin. Out. Yes, it was it sin. Was. I agree with that. And so we took off, we got married and I was so naive to what marriage was and how it worked that I thought we'd get married and everything would just work out, right? I, like I said, I didn't talk much with anybody about relationships. I didn't know much about relationships. I mean, obviously I wasn't really good in my previous relationships. I mean, it just, they were all a hot mess. And um, I somehow was a magnet for people that had, um, substance abuse. I mean, I obviously had substance abuse too, but I think that became kind of who I gravitated towards the type of men. And so Ty and I got married and we did fine for the first few months, but six months into our marriage, it was complete and utter. It was a disaster. It was a complete and utter disaster. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm a believer now. And, you know, a lot of times people share with you and say, oh, you're going to become a believer and, you're, and everything's going to be great. Your life's going to be great. And mine got even harder, I felt like. So we got married and six months into our marriage, I remember praying. First of all, when we got married, there were rumors going around that I was pregnant again because 
that's just who I was, right? I was the girl that got pregnant outside of being married. So why wouldn't that be the case a second time? And then second is that we weren't, Ty, Ty and I weren't getting along. I mean, he had, I know he shared his testimony, but his upbringing was not good at all. And there really wasn't a decent relationship. It was hard. And I remember six months into our marriage, I was praying, God, just kill him because that's the only way I can get out of this. Because I wasn't going to divorce. I was not going, one, I think the only by God's grace that Ty and I stayed together. But I think the second thing that benefited both of us is we're both extremely bullheaded and stubborn. And so neither one of us were going to file for divorce because that was wrong in God's eyes. And so I remember praying, God, just kill him. That's the only way I can get out of this. And I know that sounds really morbid. And some people might be like, what kind of cruel person could do that? But I, it's hard for me to even explain the type of relationship that we had. I mean, when you get married initially. Well, he didn't, he didn't have a father figure and well, he, he did, but his father figure was a drunk and he didn't know how to be a dad to Aaron or a husband at all. And he jumped into it after three months of dating. So yes. it was the recipe for probably the worst disaster. It, it was all the terrible things that could happen. And then you put it together. And, and he came from a household where his mother paid for everything and took care of his father in a lot of ways. So yeah. that's what he was used to. So now, not only did I have a child of my own, I didn't even feel like I had the support of a husband anymore, but I was married. And so I didn't know any other way to get out of this marriage other than to pray that he would, he would die. And I know that's very morbid and very wrong. Um, but I did, I, I didn't want in it. And when I say those two years from the time I was 18 to the time I was 20 and had Aaron um, really defined a lot of my life, I think those two, the decisions I made in those two years of my life really extended my ability to grow as a person and know who I was and what I wanted for life. And then it continued on making decisions that affected my life for a number of years. And although Ty and I were both believers, he had, he was extremely legalistic. I was a new believer from a liberal Catholic background. So you put the two of those together, that that alone is catastrophic. Um, we had a child, I had a kid that I was trying to learn to parent and I was very protective over because Aaron and I had been together. Aaron was my only kind of confident, confidant, is that the right word? <laughs> me and my I, words. Yeah. Like he was there with me through thick and thin. Aaron was my, although I wasn't a good parent, he was there. Um, and so it was just really a different dynamic. And as Ty and I progressed um, through our marriage, things did not get better for a long period of time. Like we fought like cats and dogs. Um, you know, there was, I, I would say that there was, I don't want to call it Christian, Christian abuse, but there was a lot of legalist, legalistic viewpoints yeah. that went on and yeah. it be, it became. My dad was controlling and he didn't, he wasn't discipled by the church because the church doesn't disciple people because it's a joke. And he, uh, 
he wasn't discipled. And so he basically was just reading the Bible on his own, trying to figure it out on his own. And through that became full of himself and that he knew everything and started to use scripture as like a weapon to get what he wanted rather than to do what was right. And, and, right, and but mind in, you, in a was, marriage, but he didn't know any better. Right. He was so, trying to do the right thing. So I say that because it wasn't out of malicious <clears throat> deceit. Like, yeah. He, he wasn't manipulate. He was, yeah. He thought he was doing the right thing. And I also was not discipled. I didn't have anybody to look to. I didn't know what a Christian wife was like. And so I started to, I'm a very visual person. So I would go to churches and I would see how other moms would be. And I started trying to play that role of a Christian wife. You know, the wife who's, who tries to cook, clean, stays home with the kids, attends play dates. And, you know, that's really what the church portrays as a good Christian woman that's married with kids. And don't get me wrong. I do fully believe that a woman's first, you know, priority is her household. And I agree with that. But I also am a firm believer now. It's taken me a long, long journey to get to the point that God has made each of us in his image. And he's made each of us individuals in his image and there is no mold there's not a one mold fits all for the christian life and i tried for years to go, go to these play dates and feel like i fit in and i remember going to them and never feeling like i quite fit in i loved my kids and i wanted to do what was right for them but as a christian woman i just didn't feel like i ever fit in there's like the i think a good way to explain it is like it, it in, in the in the christian especially in extremely conservative christian churches there's this expectation of like the 1950s housewife yes who is like shut your mouth clean cook take care of the kids don't ask questions and from what you know of my mom that's not possible that's not yeah so. and so for a Yes. And, and I, I don't even think, I don't even think that's healthy. I think that's, I don't think that scripture says that at all. And I think that's pretty stupid if, if women act that way. And so, yeah, anyways. Well, and I think through a lot of years of counseling, one on my own, trying to get better. One, it took a journey of complete and utter loneliness for me to figure out who I was in Christ and that, that, that God accepts me for who I am. Um, and I think that's an important thing to know is that he calls us all in different ways. And that you're right, that 1950s house style is very much what is portrayed in the Christian realm for women. And I am so far from that. And I remember people asking me, are you, are you even a believer? Do you believe in, in Christ? And I used to doubt myself all the time because I didn't fit the mold. I did not fit the regular mold. And through some circumstances in our marriage. We were married for a number of years, um, Ty and I, and we eventually worked it out and we seemed, we got along. Um, but I remember like we had, I had Aaron and then Andy came along and things seemed to be going well. And then we ended up um, deciding we wanted to do foster care because I had Aaron and Andy and I really wanted a, a little girl. And I thought, well, nothing's guaranteed when you have them on your own. So let's do foster care and try to adopt. Well, then we ended up getting our foster child and it was, he was a boy 
but he really fit into our family well. And um, he did go away for a period of time because he went back to live with his grandmother, but then they asked us to adopt him and we took him on. So then I ended up with three sons. And in hindsight, I'm grateful that I have three boys. I'm not sure I would have been the best girl mom um, out there, but. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um, so anyways, it was a long process, but there was a, pivoted time in our life when um, our whole house blew up, um, our household. So Ty and I stayed married and we were in marriage counseling on and off throughout our entire marriage. But I think it was in probably eight years ago now. So we've been married 24 years. So probably yeah, I, it was, it was eight years. We did it. We did the math. The did last you? One. Yeah. So it was like 16 years into our marriage and um, we were living a pretty good life. We've had the American dream. We had the four bedroom home, three car garage. We were a part of a church. Ty was an elder. We were actively participating. And by all outward appearances, we looked like the good Christian couple. We had mastered the act of playing good Christians. We were believers. We were strong believers, but we had mastered the, I'm involved with everything in church. My husband's now an elder. We live in this great home. We lived up to the Joneses, but we were a hot mess below the surface. Um, we were in debt up to our ears. We, um, our house was turned upside down. We didn't know how to parent. Um, Ty didn't know how to be a parent to a stepson. Andy was our only biological son between the two of us. Um, and then we had Austin who we had, did adopt, but he had RAD, reactive attachment disorders which created a whole nother set of issues that we had to deal with. And I just, our house was in turmoil. And Ty, during this time frame, although we were getting along, was very angry and like Andy said, controlling. And I was, I didn't want to fight all the time. I don't, didn't want to spend my time fighting. So I would tell him you what he wanted. would rebel, but yeah, yeah you, yeah. You would my tell him what he wanted to hear to his face. And then you just go do the opposite behind his yep. back. My rebellion wasn't gone from when I was a kid, okay? I mastered the rebellion thing really well and it was ingrained in my life. And so I would tell him what he wanted to hear and I'd be like, okay, go ahead and I just go do what I wanted to. Well, Ty had an incident that he felt in his life that he needed to come clean and I didn't see eye to eye on him with this issue. And he did come clean and he ended up losing his job. At my, and at this point in time, I was only working part-time and bringing in like $400 a month. And I, when he lost his job, that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever they say, I don't even know what it is for me, but um, I had him move out. I was done. I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and I, I just, I didn't know how to deal with life anymore because I was just tired of it. This isn't the first time that Ty had lost a job. Shortly after Andy was born, he walked away from a good job and I wasn't working. So we had no income coming in. Um, and at that point in time, I ended up having to go back to work full-time shortly after Andy was born to try to help make ends meet. And um, so when my number one love language is I, I would say financially like security that's not a love language well I think that's not a love language <laughs> but it's like money 
no it's not it's money secure what what is it like security it's financial security financial security was really That's important not, to me okay well. it's not a love language but it's just whatever it is and so this just it, it hit hard for me i was like great we're back to square one and we separated for it was a, it was three weeks that he was out of the house and those three weeks that he was out set a path in our household that I think set Ty and I on a path that we had to force ourselves to get the help that we needed to keep our family intact. But then it threw off, I would say Andy for sure, on a self-destructive path. So in some aspects, although it may not- I think it's important. Like I I had the same rebellious um, spirit that you did growing up. I, Mm -hmm. I got that from you and so Right. Like when, when, when dad's kicked out of the house, you weren't, you weren't really functioning. And like the church abandoned us. I was kind of just like, mm-hmm. screw all of you guys. Like I'm going to do whatever I want. And I, and that, and that was like, at, yeah, I mean, everything just, we talked about this in my podcast and in dad's, but I, I think everything blew up. It was yeah. our whole household blew up. And this was the first time in my entire life. And mind you, I said that <coughs> I was very social. And when I started going to that Hoyt Park that God provided me with a bunch of friends, this was the first time in my entire life that I felt like everybody, Christians, turned their back on me. Um, My parents live far away. They live out of state, so they weren't around to support us. Ty's family, I felt like, abandoned us in a lot of ways um, in the essence of dealing with any real conflict I think that they didn't know how to. So instead of helping out, they avoided us, uh, I felt like. And so this was the first time in my entire life that I felt completely alone. Um, My husband wasn't there for me. He was too self-absorbed with his problems and having to work through himself, that he wasn't supportive of me. Our church family had left. Um, And I was really, really struggling with that because like I said, I'm social and I was completely alone. I felt alone for the first time in my entire life, yet I had everything I wanted. I had family, I had a church, I had everything I thought I wanted in life. And yet for the first time I was completely alone. And for about four years, while Ty went through intense counseling, I went through intense counseling, we went through individual counseling and went through marital counseling for about a four year time span. um, I did not have any friends and I didn't have any church around me. I didn't feel like I had anyone around. And I, part of it was my fault too, because I isolated myself off because I was like, how, I didn't even know what to do. Like, I didn't know what to say, how to say it. You know, our life was blowing up again. And I just internally went inside. And um, although I look at those four years as some of the darkest times, they were probably some of the best because I remember coming out of that four-year time span, learning a lot about myself, having to set what Andy hates is what I call boundaries, but it was the first time I was able to look at Ty. And Ty and I would go to events um, prior to this, and he would, he, would, he would say things that were very condescending and demeaning to me out in public, and I would just take it, but they were very hurtful. And during this process, I remember having Christmas parties and I didn't want to 
I, I, I hated Ty. I wanted to divorce him just so you're aware at this point in time. Everything inside of me was saying, get a divorce. But I also knew that that was not what God wanted. Um, and so for the three weeks that we were separated, there was a huge internal battle going on. Do I stay married or do I get divorced? How does this work? And I remember I slept on the couch at nights and I just remember getting up and crying at night and I felt so completely alone. But I remember at one point, three weeks, just about three weeks into this, God said, if you're gonna stay married, then you need to let him back into the house. And I knew at that point that that was God's way of basically telling me marriage is for the long haul. And I remember calling Ty saying, yeah, come on back. But I looking, I, det I despised him. I despised him for what he did to his family. Part of me hated his fam, his, his biological, his, what do you call it? The meat bill. His, his side of the family. Yeah. His side of the family, because this is the man that they created. This man was, was mean to my, my son that I had. He, he wasn't a good father to him. He wasn't a good husband. And, and I was mad because I know, I know where he came from. And I, I, I don't blame him because when you have that much neglect in your life. So I knew Ty had a lot of work to do, but then that just fueled fire on me disliking his family in a lot of ways. And of course, during all of this, they stayed away and they weren't supportive to my kids or helpful or anything, which bothered me, really bothered me. Because when my kids were younger, Ty's mom was very supportive of my kids and she was there for them. And then when this happened, they just left us hanging too. And so um, it was extraordinarily hurtful and I was angry, but I remember God saying marriage is for the long haul. So when Ty moved back in, I didn't even want to look at him. I remember having to get in bed at night and I just was like dis disgusted that I was even in this relationship. And so I only share this because I tell people who are out there in difficult marriages that, that God doesn't approve of divorce unless there's infidelity, um, you know, affairs going on or, or even like severe abuse. I, I would, I would, you know, where you're in a dangerous situation. He, it doesn't matter. Physi how you physically, feel. I think. Yeah. Physically. That's what I meant. He, it doesn't matter how you're feeling because divorce is not okay. And it destroys, destroys families. And I think it's important. I think one, one way to look at it for people who, I don't know, who don't really understand divorce, I think as a church has been so frail and weak on this point because they're afraid of offending anybody. Um, I, I think when, when you look at the, the way that like the Bible describes like the churches and the marriage, the church is a marriage to Christ and, and how the church is a whore and is cheating on Christ and is always walking away from Christ. Jesus doesn't leave the church and we're called to be like Jesus, even in our marriages, no matter what our spouses do. And it can be bad and you're not supposed to just quit and leave. And I think, I think the lack of good teaching in churches in America, we've just, because so many people are getting divorces inside the church and outside the church that they just stop teaching that. And I think that it's important 
to like, I mean, things were bad in your guys' marriage. It was a disaster. And both of you had every, probably every, every right in your head to walk away from it. And that's just not what Jesus would want. Right. And I agree with Point that. I, I agree with that. I think that, that we're so, we're in a society that accepts it and, and we brought it into the church so readily and easily. And anybody can have an excuse for divorce. Um, but I say that because Ty moved back in and we had, like I said, four years of intense counseling. Ty went, you know, one of the things was if you're coming back, then you need to get into intense counseling because I knew his childhood was bad. I knew what he was brought up in and I don't think he ever dealt with it. And then I had to get into a counseling. So we were doing one-on-one -on -one counseling and we we're doing marital counseling. The money that we spent on counseling Mind you, he wasn't working. He'd quit, he'd lost his job. I went back to work full-time. I was making 15 bucks an hour. Um, Ty was working as contracted, not bringing in a lot of money, but we had to make counseling a priority to keep our family intact. We were paying a lot of money a month to go through counseling. There were bills that we couldn't pay. And I share all this because everybody has the excuse. I don't have money. I don't have this. If you truly want to get yourself better and you want things to get better, you need help, outside help. And you need to put your priorities intact in your relationships, your families. And, and this was Christian counseling, just so people yes. know. It, was, it, it wasn't was, just the other crap. It was Christian counseling. Yep. Yes. Um, so we went through counseling four years of it. On top of that, um, Blackhawk had a, oh, what's the name of it? They had a program there that if you were struggling they would connect you with like another person in the church to walk alongside you. And I finally decided that because I didn't have anybody around anymore and I was all in my own head other than my weekly counseling session, it was actually every other week I think I went, that they connected me with this lady, her name was Diane. And I gotta tell you, she was a godsend. She was an older lady who walked through with me for four years and like I said, some of the worst four years of my life, they were very lonely. I remember meeting with her and at times she was like, I don't even know what to tell you right now. And she goes, and she wouldn't have an aunt, like she, I wouldn't go to her for answers, but she was just there walking alongside me. She went through it for four years with me. And there were times she looked at me and she goes, I don't know how you're getting by but I, this is, and she'd pull out the Bible and she'd say, this is what God says. And she said, I remember sharing some of the stuff that was going on during this time frame, and, and she'd even say, everything inside of me wants to tell you to run, but that's not right. And she would open the Bible and share scripture with me. And she was right. Like I had to stick it out. Um, and I had to keep going. And although at times I didn't feel like Ty and I were getting better, um, I felt like in a lot of ways, he was very self-absorbed into himself, but I think that was part of him um, working through things. But the one thing I came away from that still sticks with me today is at the end of that four years, the breakthrough for me was, I remember sitting there reading my Bible at one point and God was saying, am I enough? If you have nothing else in this world, can you be okay with just me? And I struggled with that question because I was like, how do I get to that point of just being content with just God and I, just him and I, 
and nothing more. And I finally got to that point. Yeah. Like if I don't have anything else and this is all I have, I'm okay with it. And it took a long time, but I think that's where we all have to get in life is that people are going to fail us. Um, our works are going to fail us. Our spouses are going to fail us. Our kids are going to fail us. Our parents are going to fail us. And when it's all said and done, someday it's just going to be me and God standing there. And although I fail him every single day, he doesn't fail me. And so no matter what you're going through, and no matter how difficult marriage is, how, I mean, I haven't even touched on my kids in high school and middle school. I mean, Andy was a hot mess. We can talk about that at a different time. But during all of this, too, we have kids going every which direction. So no Aaron matter, was a mess, too. I mean, yeah, yeah Aaron, Aaron was a mess. Andy was, but Andy, you were the worst so far out of the three of them. <laughs> um, you know, my rebellious spirit is still there sometimes. Um, I'm far from good. I have my ebbs and flows of my faith. But what I do know is if you persevere, I am a firm believer that if you persevere through the difficult times, God will bring you out a better person. And, but you have to be willing to make the right decisions. Even when our society is telling you something different. You know, at this point in our life, I mean, like I said, Ty and I were, not only did we, you know, have to go through intense counseling, we had to sell, I had to sell my dream home, the house that I loved because we couldn't afford it. We moved into this duplex that was kind of dumpy that we rented for a year. And then eventually we bought, bought a different duplex in Wanakee and flipped it and it got us out of debt. You know, we're at a point where we're debt-free. We don't have that stress of figuring out where we're going to get money to pay our bills. Um, you know, our life has changed around a lot. Ty and I are in a place that we're better. We're not at a place where we're perfect. We're far from it, but we do get along. Like, that's a step in the right direction. We get along, and we actually um, enjoy doing stuff together, even though we're completely opposites, we don't really like any of the same stuff. So I just think I say all this because I, I think, I think as believers, we, um, it's easier to follow the world and society than it is to follow God. And if we're truly claiming to be believers, our job is to follow him. It doesn't matter how you feel, our feelings can take us in all different directions. It doesn't matter what you want because you can want something for your life and it may not be what God wants from your life. And so I think the one thing that I take away from kind of my story is that one, you know, people come off in this world and say, oh, I'm a survivor. I don't feel like I'm a survivor. I'm far from that but I definitely have persevered. And um, when you persevere for the God and for the right choices, he will honor that. And he will take you, um, he will take you in the right direction, even when you're still a hot mess. So 
Anyways, I'm a hot mess right now, so. <laughs> I don't know what else I have to say. How long have I been on this? Like two hours. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Hopefully it makes sense. Hopefully when I listen back to it, it'll make sense. But there's a lot of gaps in my in this story that I didn't even share because I could be here probably for five or six hours. But, you know, the gist of it is, is to, to keep going don't give up i think like uh, so i've gone through we've gone through my testimony my dad's reagan's and yours and i think like this whenever i'm like thinking through this stuff and i'm like there it's like a miracle from god that we are christians and alive all of us like i, I don't know I, I don't know there's just like a lot of pain and like a lot of hard stuff and i think that like people think when you're going to become a Christian, things get better. And, and I've never thought, that, I, I mean, pr probably because of how I grew up, but the, the reality is that the world hates you when you love Jesus and that the forces of evil are working against you when you're f trying to follow Jesus. And I think that that's, that's kind of our family's story. And it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. If that's like that, like you don't quit because of that, you keep going yeah. and you, and and you just wait till a day when you die and go to heaven and that's that's why we're here so i i mean yeah i mean that that was probably the most stressful one i've done not maybe not stressful but just like you think i'm stressful <laughs> a lot of crying but well, i think thanks. it's important for people yeah. to to hear that because i mean i didn't want when i started with these testimonies like i I know there's a bunch of crap going on in people's lives in the Christian faith that nobody wants to talk about because everybody wants to act perfect. I'm not, is, is, I don't want to have perfect people on to tell their testimonies because there's nobody that's perfect. And I right. think that we got to be vulnerable about this stuff in the church and we got to talk about it because we're not going to get anywhere being fake. And, and so I think that this is important. And I think also just because you were going to have an abortion, I think it's important to say for like women or girls who are out there who have had an abortion or are going to have an abortion or whatever, whoever's listening, like, I mean, one, if you've had an abortion, like Jesus still loves you Two, if you want to get an abortion, no, don't there's resources and there's other things like, like, you know, and a care net is a good resource for that right yeah. here in Madison. Yeah. And they'll, provide i don't know how they really work but they're probably a great resource for that and so i, I don't know i just think and i will i do want to add this like a lot of people use the excuse that i could never raise a kid i mean i just shared with you i was in no place whatsoever to raise a kid and aaron right now is married to a christian woman um i believe he has the faith uh he has his own battles to work through because of his upbringing and in situations but you know, God's, I do believe he works for the good of those who believe in him. That doesn't mean that he's going to do everything that you want. I mean, my family is still not believers. My, my parents, my sister, like not everything's perfect, but there's been in our family alone, Andy. I mean, it's, a, he's, Andy's right. It's a miracle. It's first of all, it's a miracle Ty and I are still married. It's a miracle that Andy has faith that Aaron has faith. I, I don't know where Austin stands. He just graduated. It's a miracle that Austin's at where he's at today based on his first two years of life. And that's a whole two hour podcast within itself um, that I could go off on. I mean, 
it's perseverance and it's well i think it's like also you when people say i couldn't raise a kid if you're a christian and you're saying you couldn't raise a kid i mean i think your mindset's already wrong like like you didn't really raise the kid you didn't raise like god raises your kids like god if god wants your kid to be alive which he does he wants to be born then he's gonna make a way and like and i think he will make a way but you have to at some point take responsibility for your actions yeah you you have have to to grow up but don't say that god doesn't right right yeah and i think that if if starting at day one and going to to now would you think aaron's going to be a christian no you wouldn't think he is but he is and do you think i'd be a christian no do you think my dad or you? No, the answer is always no. And that's the whole point of it is that it's not about what people, what you think is going to happen because God doesn't care about what you think. He's going to make what he wants to happen, happen. And he's going to, and it's going to, that's how it's going to work. And I think it's uh, people, I mean, just do the right thing. Do what God I mean, tells you to do. Here's the other thing I want to point out is that as a believer, and I think other people in the church, it's one thing to, it's important to remember too, Andy, you, and I know Aaron for sure, and Austin's just starting this, you've had a lot of people um, in your life help you and guide you too, outside of us as your parents, okay? Ty and I did what we could do, we failed in many realms, but you, you've had a number of men come into your life and help guide you, they still need to keep guiding you, Aaron, I know there was times when I've called people of the church and I'm like, Aaron's struggling. Can you help him? And I remember Rod going and picking him up several times. And so there's other people. I mean, that's why we need the church. That's why we need each other. That's why we're family. It's a, we can't do it on our own. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we're, we're all sinners. We, well, we all have sin in our life still and we all fail. And although we're forgiven by Jesus and he's already taken our sin, we need each other and it's crucial. So yeah. anyways, I probably talk long enough. We're and two I stressed hours you out long enough. <laughs> yeah, this will probably be out next or you know what after I don't know. It'll be out soon. Um I guess that's it. Do you have anything any I mean you've kind of said everything. So yeah. you don't um if you want to talk to my mom, I you could probably find her at church or email or something like that. We can get in touch with her. I mean obviously like yeah, I mean, what I don't know what else to say. This is well, I would say that if anybody, I mean, if anybody does ever need something, like nothing surprises me. Like, if somebody came to me in the church and said some of the most awful with the wall thing, it, nothing surprises me because although we're in church and people claim to be believers, there's a lot of stuff that still goes on behind closed doors. And I, even if it's, even if you're not going to a church and let's say you're struggling with the thought of abortion or you're pregnant or there's something like nothing surprises me. And Andy knows that he's shared stuff with us in his life. And like, are you kidding me? And you know, when I tell people like our kids have told us stuff that most parents would fall over backwards. They're like, how do you, I'd never tell my parents anything crazy like that. Well, I mean, I think that's just part of it. Yeah. So yeah so yeah i mean thank you for coming on well that's about it then Um, okay we'll see you guys in the next one okay Bye. bye